Welcome to the 76th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the signposts of scalable systems. So, Brendan, it occurred to me relatively recently that when I look at a new system, a new tool, whether I'm designing it or I've been given something to deploy and manage and maintain, that I have this intuitive ability to sort of suss out how maintainable the system is going to be, how well it's going to scale, and kind of point out what the problems are going to be in the future. And I realized that I kind of wanted to dig into that some, that there are really some basic sort of signposts, for lack of a better word, of how I judge implementing a, a new service and how well it will do and what we can do to make it scale. I, I'm totally with you. I've seen so many different products and services along my career that fundamentally don't scale. Um, it's kind of sad in terms of when you're when you're looking at a, especially a package service or a package product that you're trying to deploy for someone, and you realize that there is either there's a step in there somewhere that's only done manually through a GUI, or there's a step in there that is interminable and single threaded. But how do I how do I actually? Oh, I can't. So yeah, this is this is. Or sometimes good. it's it's silly things like upgrade paths. If you're if you have a base system and you're adding you know some bolt on features to it and. Both systems work in isolation, but you try to move from the base system to the new bolt-on system, keep all your data intact, and you realize that there's no migration path. That one got me recently. Yeah, or the migration path is very much a one-way only street, and you can't test it beforehand, and it's non-deterministic, or it is, you have to go from this point version to this point version to this point, and it's like, oh, but every one of those is downtime, and every one of those is... Danger okay. Will Robinson. Yeah, so I'm going to let you drive on this episode generally because this was sort of your brainchild, but I think application state's the first thing on our document, right? So, yeah, I've got three general sort of categories that I look at as far as how I judge an application or how I look at a design. And first is application state. What is that application doing? Does it store local state? How does it handle its internal data? Uh, the second big category is being able to process input. The third big category is being able to process output. So starting with application state, honestly, the first thing I look at is what language is this application written in? Yes. I have some biases. I think I may need counseling. Some of those biases are borne out very much by reality. I've seen some really beautifully written Perl, but that is generally the exception, not the rule. If I see something in production now written in Perl, I kind of back away because it is not known for speed, resiliency, concurrency, or anything like that these days. Yeah. Similarly, I've seen Ruby do some really cool things. I don't reach for Ruby when it comes from multi-threaded. We're going to give a shout out to Jared here, who, as I'm sure, going to join us on a later podcast to rebuke our statements about Ruby. But Python fits in this category as well. Uh, Python is a really successful language used in a lot of places. It's really big in doing data science-y stuff now and manipulating data. If I was reaching for a language to teach someone programming, Python would really be on the top of that list. But again, uh, can we say global interpreter lock? It's really hard to write multi-threaded Python. It's really hard to get good speed out of Python. A friend of mine who's a software developer at one point posited that no programming language is a real language unless you can write a massive multiplayer online role-playing game in it. And 
he qualified that Python is a real language because um, EVE Online is written in Python. But there's a caveat to that, that it's written in Stackless, which is basically Python without the gil. So they've done some interesting things to Python to make it work that way. And yeah, the global interpreter lock is, is a massive detriment to Python's ability to scale. And that's part of the reason, from what I understand, that Google wrote the Go language is because they needed to get something that was more concurrent. And so they moved off of Python for that. And I would actually quibble with you that if I was teaching people computer science today, I would probably start with Go because it is very, the, the core of the language is very simple. It's very small. It doesn't have millions of libraries and dependencies, and it teaches a lot of really good habits. So that it does. Back to the, the larger so, topic, though. Um, the other language that, it, when I see, I generally breathe a sigh of relief because it usually means the developers have been thinking about this, is Scala. Um, most of the things that I've touched in my professional life that are written in Scala run really well. Surprisingly, surprisingly well. Even so, on the JVM, surprisingly. Yeah, the, the JVM still does its bytecode optimization magic and all its other weird internal tricks that it does that are cool, but... Scala makes Scala marks it as having been thought out at a different level, and it's just like Kafka. Apache's the Apache Kafka project is written in Scala, and it's amazing. You can write good code on the JVM. Who knew? Java. I'm my boat's still out. I've seen some really excellent Java that's really scalable and really runs really well. I've seen a lot of the opposite. And once you get past the language it's written in, there's other there's other pieces of it. How does it handle lock files? How does it handle second invocations of a pro of the program running concurrently? How does it concurrency? But how does it handle the the integrity of the data that's both running in the application's memory and it's it stayed on disk, so it can restart and recover from where wherever it was? And this is where database design comes in. Like if you look at Postgres versus MySQL, Postgres is a vastly superior database in terms of that but mysql doesn't do a terrible job of it anymore so but take a look at these things take, take a look at how the state is handled take a look at the way the application developers are thinking about consistency of data and the importance of operations on data and both those databases are written in c and usually if you're dealing with an application that's written in c the authors for lack of better phrasing know what they're doing uh, that gives folks a incredible control over how the application runs and performs, how you can build locking semantics and all that fun stuff. And that's that's a signpost to me that somebody knows what they're doing and has written some scalable code. I've replaced a lot of the Python in Graphite with C-based, uh, especially Carbon C Relay-based uh, daemons to scale Graphite. And that, that simple switch to using... Uh, a carbon C relay written in C allowed me to scale graphite immensely more than the than the Python daemons. And Go for me is kind of similar. Usually Go code is, has been pretty well thought out, well designed code. So I usually trust things that are written in Go. But yeah, the, the next thing is, as Brennan was alluding to is, does the application store state locally? Or is it more or less immutable? And how it deals with that state on disk is... Fun. Another piece of the the state question is: Is it sharing state with other instances? Are you running a cluster of these things, or are you just running a bunch of con concurrent instances that can handle it in parallel? Anytime that a cluster gets involved, I get a little bit wary because clustering is implicitly hard. 
and a lot of people do it poorly or wrong. And even when they do it right, it adds a level of complexity and risk to the underlying operation that you don't find when you say you're running, I don't know, 10 or 100 standalone Nginx or Apache servers that each concurrently handle whatever traffic they're given, but don't need to have message passing between the instances to, to agree on things. As much as I use Elasticsearch and like Elasticsearch, I really hate the fact that it's massive, massive clusters. How an application replicates state is an important thing to study. If you're just scaling up web servers, all you got to do is replicate that web content. I mean, that's our sync and Git, and you're fine. That's really simple. If you're dealing with state on disk and you're walking into a cluster where you need a larger cluster to handle the amount of state you have, how is that state replicated throughout the cluster? There's, there's lots of tricks in the book. There's lots of math that can be applied here. Perhaps it's doing basic consistent hashing. But when you step up and you start using Raft and Paxos um, consistency algorithms, make sure the folks at Root that know what they're doing or using a good library mm-hmm. because getting consistency right can be can be fun. Well, there is a, a very valid reason that a lot of people defer to things like Zookeeper or Redis or Memcached to handle that Those problem Those are good for tools them. to deal with that problem, yes. Because they're battle-tested, they're well-developed, people have understood the bugs in the corner cases implicitly, and it means that the application developer said, I'm not going to go try to do this myself. I'm going to let somebody else's library... You don't have to rewrite all those bugs in corner cases. Exactly. The next kind of piece of it is when you're looking at the system requirements for running whatever the thing is. Is it multi-threaded? Is it, does it need big, fast, single-threaded instances? And you run many of them? Can it run multi-threaded on your system? Does it do lightweight threads? Does it do um, what goes channels or whatnot it is? How does it handle the use of resources on the thing it's running on? Does it, does it use the disk caches and the, the disk buffers um, to, its, to its advantage? Does it use the virtual memory system to its advantage? Does it, was it designed to, take as, to utilize as much of the resource of this of the host system as possible so you're not running really lean on various pieces if you're dealing with trying to scale an application that's only single threaded and doesn't really take full advantage of the system that's definitely a warning sign i'm looking at you carbon cache and python for graphite and my earliest forays into writing software um, were not pretty on memory and did some really, really bad things. And with the copious amounts of RAM that are available now as compared to 15, 20 years ago, a lot of people have gotten kind of lazy about memory management and how they how they handle and clean up and, and operate on things. And that's, that's also telling. A lot of the C stuff that I see is written in... You know, the the compiled binary is measured in megabytes, and its entire memory footprint is also mega measured in megabytes. Or K, kilobytes. And that's good. Frequently, things like Elasticsearch or Kafka or other large data processing systems use gigabytes of memory and tens of gigabytes of memory. And you're scaling based on memory, not based on anything else. And it's scary to think that there's all of this, there's all of this data that is sitting in ECC RAM somewhere. I hope it's ECC for your sake. And you're relying on the efficacy of the programmer to find all the tricks with memory and all the things because it's, it's ballooning based on your data size. And that gets scary versus something like FQ, which it just, it runs a buffer and it in and out. It just as fast as it can go, and it doesn't grow into hundreds of megabytes or gigabytes. FQ is written in C. You, mm-hmm. The author who wrote that C has to know their memory management, because C doesn't offer any sort of automated memory management. So you only have one choice, and that is to get it right. Um, most applications, let's pick on Go for a second, um, have some sort of garbage collection routines 
that handle memory allocation and memory deallocation for you. One of the reasons I like Go is that it will, once it garbage collects your application, if it realizes that it needs significantly less memory than is currently allocated, it will free that memory and give it back to the host OS. Um, to pick on Python more, Python will never release memory back to the host OS. Even if its internal garbage collection frees memory, it still holds that memory for the Python process. So the amount of memory that Python process consumes never goes down from the the host's point of view. And these things have ramifications when you're dealing with high throughput or big queries and just the general bumps and variations of this part of the system's hot today, that part's hot tomorrow, etc. So the next stage, I guess, has to be the processing of input. And this is your application or your service getting data in from any external system. This, this could be another process on the same host. This could be a customer on the internet. This could be another team internally that's sending data across the wire. This Web could be shared. Hits, API hits. You're ingesting this, a, a Kafka bus stream, database inserts. You could be looking at a parallel file system. You could be looking at Ceph. You could be looking at all kinds of other ways to bring data in. So how the application manages that input, how it cues it and how it throttles it and how it understands the rate limiting of it is really important. Key question to ask, is the, is the order of the data input important? Can you handle these events out of order or must they be handled in the same order they were received? Because for a scalable system, the moment you say you have to handle them in the order received, you are extraordinarily limiting how wide you can scale. The distributed theorems about how network stuff works, you can't guarantee in order delivery of message across um, instances. So if there's a group of data that has to be done in order, it pretty much has to be done by the same instance, assuming that your has to be done in order is a hard requirement. Oh my gosh, what's the, the acronym? Is it the CAP theorem? I think it's the CAP theorem. Consistency and availability under partitioning. So partitioning. the idea there being that... I should know that. You, I should know that. Are you consistent or are you available when there's a network partition? If you If you segment off a portion of the workers, do you get the correct answer at the end, but the system isn't available for use during... Or do you make the system available and you realize that things may be a little wonky in the middle? Um, it's important to understand and why you pick which trade-off when is, is really, it matters. That rule has some interesting leeway, but it's a good general rule of thumb. Um, consistency. Must your data stay in order? That means to have consistency, you have to give up availability or the ability to tolerate network partitions. And usually a good application is one, a good cluster that really knows what they're doing has two, three are impossible. If you want a really interesting and humorous look into this, the um, the Jepson tests are a, a kind of a masterclass in watching a person take apart popular protocols and applications and demonstrate how they fail under load, how they fail under partitioning, how they fail under these things. And he has a couple, uh, what's his name? Remember, I can't remember his actual name. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But he has a couple of walkthroughs of the CAP theorem itself and like how it works and why it's important to understand what the trade-offs are. And so if you are interested in that, it is a really fascinating thing to look at. Um, but knowing how, that, how it handles your, the input of your data is critically important because that's how when you're bringing stuff in, especially during a scaling event, and you haven't tested everything fully and you, you've added more workers to it, what happens? How, do, how does that how does that shake out? Another key question to ask for processing input is what 
what tools and techniques are used to prevent data loss? Or is a certain amount of data loss acceptable? Do you reply to each HTTP hit? Do you lose a couple? If you're ingesting events of some type, is it okay to drop some? Or do you have some sort of tool for making sure that those are in a queue and guaranteed to be received and processed? And for the example of an HTTP-based service, have you implemented 429s for effectively the server is too busy back off? And so it's a back pressure message you can send back down the pipe to say, hey, don't give it to me as fast because... Slow down, please. Yeah. It's, again, really important to see if a system designer and developer has thought about when things aren't going well, when things are, are too hot or too overloaded, how do we signal to the rest of the system that, hey, we need a little bit of time to breathe and get this done? And clearly doing queuing for data coming in is really easily handled by a message bus like Kafka or FQ. I'm sure there's a bunch of other common ones. Well, you can use Redis for it. You can use I mean, I've... Uh, I don't recommend Redis this, and losing but, data. But I've seen people do um, MySQL tables as basically a temporary storage table of jobs to be done and things to go out. But if you want acid semantics to make sure that your your jobs are, are in there, hey, that that's a it's a valid approach, but it doesn't scale that well. And part of this is finding the the semantics that work for the application because requirements vary and are different. Um, especially dealing with a lot of metric stuff. I'm not trying to taint the story here too much the metrics, but being able to give a client an HTTP 200 and by passing that HTTP 200 back to the client, the client knows that the metric data it submitted has now been committed to disk. Not exactly where it's been committed to disk, but that it's impossible to lose that data once you got a 200 code back from it. The Kafka example has a similar um, piece in it. There's a number of required acknowledgments for each chunk of data that comes in. And you the default is a setting of one, which I, guess, I think one is a default, which basically means you have to confirm that one broker has the data and has written it to disk. Not necessarily that the, fo- the, the followers for the partition have also committed it to disk because that takes additional time and processing. Um, you can also disable them, the checks completely, and just say, I'm assuming that if I sent it, that they have it and we're good. And that is dangerous and fast. Um, and you also, of course, instead of to, to full commits to basically make sure that every broker that is supposed to have a copy has the copy before you move on to the next message. And having the option to set it, especially when there's a big warning in the manual that says, if you don't set this correctly, you will you will have data loss. Like, okay, well, they know what they're doing and they know how this scales. And they know that needs for different applications are different. And they put that power of, of which trade-off are you going to make in your hands, the builder, the designer of that system rather than who decided to write Kafka. It's kind of like, here's a toolkit, and we have a bunch of different options for you. You have to know how and why to pick up the tools. The hood is not welded shut. No. And moving along, the the converse of this is, how does the, the application handle its outputs? So the inputs are all fine and good, but a lot of these things we do are either in a message bus of some variety, or they're in a data data pipeline of some variety, or they're a, a store of record, but people need to get data back out of it. And the design of the the data retrieval pieces or the, the, the data... I always find this the weakest part of the system. We have such good understanding and practice around doing message busing and making sure that we can record data and ship it in. And now we're looking at how do we ship data out. So we're fanning out data. And to me, this is always the weakest part of the link. Well, it's hard. Oh, details. Never let that stand in the way. No. So I'm usually thinking about... You've done some sort of HTTP API 
well, and or API, and the system you've queried is now about to pass you a result. So big things to know, is that result deterministic and cacheable? This is basically what using a giant CDN does wrapped around your website. There's so many of those results that are completely deterministic and easily cacheable. It's easy to cache them and move them faster to the move them closer to the user and give the user a better experience and reduce load on your system. One of the interesting things that I found recently, or not recently, but one of the things that I found in my current life as doing Elasticsearch stuff is a query for now to now minus 15 minutes is an order of magnitude more expensive at times than doing two minutes or rather than giving a specific time range anchored to um, anchored to relative to now because when you're giving a specific time range, an actual static set of time codes, the next time you ask that question, the system's already cached and buffered the answer. When you're saying now, it has to relook of everything with current. And so it has to void its cache and go completely from disk again or memory again. You, it can't go to its lookup tables. And this pattern holds true in lots of other in other places. Um, if you look at the way, if, if, you, if you have a caching layer sitting in front of, in front of say, MySQL, and every time you ask a question, you're changing your timestamps, well, it's going to get different answers, and so it has to go query it again. But if the if the actual query that you're passing is static, it can buffer and say, oh, well, I know that that hasn't changed, and I'm going to return the old result for it. Yeah, part of the, the tricks you can use is, can you take a query and muck with it just a little bit so you can break it up into deterministic parts, so you can cache those parts, rather than than having to run the entire query through the system again. Similarly, it's really important to know, okay, how much system resources does it take to service that query? That's eh, fine. And can you measure that? <laughs> I've seen databases brought to their knees by, and I think we all have, by, by queries that were poorly optimized that are being run against data tables that were far larger than they were intended to be run against because hey, it works on my laptop is one thing, but when you actually start querying the production databases, you it's a different scale of, of impact. And then, or the the more common case, honestly, is when you have a query that's been running every week for months or years, time out of mind, and then the amount of data in the system changes and suddenly people are going, well, why is this, why is this thing failing This now? has worked it's for like, five years, all of a sudden it's broken well, the thing that changed is instead of having 100,000 records in your database, you have 10 million records in your database. And it's iterating through all of them, and now you have to get a different query because... The thing that changed is that gradually over time, your table grew, and gradually performance got worse, and now it's gotten bad. And it's gotten bad enough that you notice. Um, or it's hit there's one of the a, holodeck safeties you set up in your application or MySQL or whatever. There's a kind of a, a junk question for interviews that I really don't like very much, but in this particular context is valid. And the question often gets asked about how would you scale this 100x tomorrow? And I that hate is that not, question. It's not a reasonable question by many metrics, but in this particular... In thing, my operational it, brain, I get asked this question and the simple answer is I get 100x traffic or 10x traffic tomorrow. You haven't told me or given me any warning. The service is going to fall over. The point in the interview is to get past that part. <laughs> Yeah, but the it is a useful exercise when you're thinking about, is my system scalable? So, okay, let's say you get 10x traffic or 100x t traffic tomorrow or a week from now. You, you get you get a week's worth of notice. And somebody says, okay, on Tuesday of next week, we're going to get 10x traffic because there's an event of some kind going on. Or Release a new traffic. product. We expect more traffic. Let's go. So 
you start thinking through the through the pipeline. Okay, so the application needs to bring in data, it needs a service request, it needs to do whatever business logic it has, it needs to output stuff to the next system. Where where are we getting the data from and how does it and as you walk your your brain through that process, you'll see all the red flags. You you will really notice them and go, Oh, but Logstash doesn't do that or hang on, hang on, we're we're paying a penny a gig in network transit in our cloud provider. Guys, this is going to cost money. Like this is really expensive because we're using ELBs or or whatever the the pays you go data rate is. And it's like, guys, have you thought about the fact that this is going to cost us a thousand dollars a day in whatever? Like th- those are real questions you have to ask. AWS and think credits. About. Yeah, because not all of these questions are, will my system fall over? It's also, oh sure, I can I can scale the number of instances out, but at some point. Do we want to spend a million dollars a year on this? Is that is that really a valid spend of money? And the exercise service? is identifying, okay, what kind of traffic is increasing? What paths through the system that you've designed need to be scaled out or strengthened? And which parts of the system are inconsequential or have already are or are already sufficiently scaled? Yeah, my my snarky way of looking at this is does Amazon offer a bespoke, custom, super expensive pay-as-you-go version of this service? <laughs> if you look at EMR or you look at, I mean, if you look at just like the, the load balancers they offer, because they also charge per kilobyte or per gigabyte or whatever the, the metric is there. So just to run a load balancer, which you could just run a load balancer, you could run an Envoy or something in a, in a machine, they're going to charge you an arm and a leg for transit because it's passing through their load balancer. Well, load balancers actually aren't all that easy. There's a lot of thought and design and direction that goes into it. And so Amazon's bet is, especially for a smaller organization, you're not going to worry about, like, it's going to be a couple hundred dollars a year or a couple hundred dollars a month. It's not a big deal. And getting it right is hard. So, okay, we'll let somebody else handle it for us. And especially for smaller companies, I mean, you're, what you're good at is not running a load balancer. You're focusing on, on being good at what your revenue stream is. But if you're, if the question of what happens if we get 10x traffic tomorrow is, oh, we spend 20x our current budget, well, you've got a problem. And so, again, th- these, are, these are ways to look at your systems and realize, do they scale reasonably? Now, if you're in the, the fortunate place that a 10x drive of traffic is also a 10x drive of, of profit, or revenue, hey, great, no worries. You just you turn all auto-scaling on and you're off to the races and you don't have to worry about it. But that generally isn't the case. One thing that Brendan pointed out to me earlier was that if you're using an ELB and suddenly your traffic spikes and you're paying $1,000 a day for traffic through the ELB, that pays for a full-time employee to run a, an incredibly scalable HA proxy insert load balancer of choice technology within AWS, whatever cloud platform you're in, and probably do it more efficiently and a lot cheaper. And a lot of these pieces only really kick in when you have, when you're designing a system for scale that you expect to actually exercise that scale. If you are at a, at a small company and you're running a microservice that gets 10 hits a second, well, if you go to a thousand hits a second, honestly, that's not going to move the needle for the finances or other pieces. Now, if you are running a proxy for your microservice architecture and it's doing 100,000 events a second, well, now we're talking. Like, now we've got a problem because that becomes a gating factor. And you have to think about, did the setup and operation of this lend itself to generally composability or the, the ability to take individual pieces of the system and scale them up? 
Um, and is there the knowledge to do it? Like, do we have the people in house who have the documentation and the resources and the expertise to say, oh, well, I need to get this moving? Yeah, it's important. So I had a few applications I wanted to pick on and look at them in the light of of this model of, of operational design. I'm sure I should label this with some hipster buzzword devopsy phrase, but somebody will tell me that in the comments to this show. So let's look at a pretty basic web server setup, has some static pages, has some dynamic pages. So application state, you're distributing a pile of files, get an rsync. Or you can use a, a AWS Elastic File, whatever their NFS service is. Elastic File Server, the EFS. There we go. So maintaining application state is probably pretty simple. You can do a simple automated deploy job that checks out a Git repository. Uh, dynamic page pages might be handled by a database server. That's a different service. You run this this exercise again to to analyze the scalability of that that database service. Uh, processing input the inputs the which are requests for data are short, simple, and usually pretty deterministic. If you need to scale, it's easy to set up a load balancer and be able to fan those queries to multiple different machines, which then can respond directly to the client. Uh, processing output, you're probably sending much more data toward the client than they're sending toward you, but cacheable, deterministic, using proxies or squid or SCDN of some type uh, makes this a really easily solved problem. Nginx and Apache are both written in C and both very good backend servers. This is a, an interesting textbook model. It's really easily scalable. The parts are well understood. And as you start to dig into higher performance versions of this, there's often cases where you could use something like Hugo instead of using a blogging engine or whatever to to get rid of the dynamic part of the site entirely. To say, I'm just going to pre-render and pre-output all the things that I need every time we change anything on the site, including all the statuses and all the CSS and everything else that we could possibly want. Because it is so much easier to cache and serve static content. And, and that's you just why lost like a backend database service. That's exactly. an excellent hack. And now it is even easier to scale the system because it's like, yeah, I'll just I'll copy the Git repo to Asia or I'll copy the Git repo to New Zealand or wherever the, the traffic flood is coming from. Get the content closer to the user and all you're doing is serving the same content. So anytime you can convert from dynamic to static, you should. But that's another story. So next is my favorite brainchild, Prometheus. And man, I guess I have a love-hate relationship with Prometheus. I use it lots. I really like it. But does it scale? It's like the YouTube channel. Does it blend? Sure, I just violated copyright somewhere. So application state. Prometheus stores custom data in a custom format locally on disk. That data is not really replicatable in any way. The... The DRHA way to set up a Prometheus machine is to set up a second one that does its own independent data ingestion. So it has different data. The data is not, not the same at all. Now you can use either set of data to come to the same conclusions, look at the same trends, build the same logic. But the data on disk is, is not a replica in any sense of the word. It also means that a single, your, your gating factor, your scaling factor is the bandwidth of a single Prometheus instance, because if you can't do it with one, you can't do it. There's some tricks to do some consistent hashing to figure out 
okay, here's a pool of Prometheus servers. Each member scrapes a subset. But that gets really sort of jinky pretty fast. And even the Prometheus folks steer you away from that. Yeah, the design of Prometheus inherently is you have a small enough job set that a single server can scrape it. And then you have lots of job sets with lots of single servers or lots of two servers scraping a job set. Sort of an SOA mentality. Yeah, you, you combine that later somewhere. There's a little bit of hand-waving that I'm not terribly comfortable with that goes on there. But once you have a, a single application or a single group of, like a single, a single SOA service that is generating a substantial amount of metrics, Prometheus starts to fail the scaling test. But it's written in Go, which is a really scalable language. It uses multiprocessing really well. Its RAM consumption is generally well understood, easily measurable, and it does check a lot of interesting boxes for for can Prometheus scale. Um, looking at input, there really is no bus input. Prometheus kind of operates on a model that it can drop a scrape. It, a scrapes can fail. Missing data points aren't a big problem because you have data points on either side. So it just does a simple HTTP get to sort of suck in data from a remote client. It's really well parallelized. It, Prometheus's data ingestion algorithms and code is really pushes Go to the limits. That's definitely a box that it checks, even if it doesn't guarantee that all data gets ingested. Can it deal with responding to ingest data in different order than received? It can, so there's another checkbox for it. Uh, producing output. Output is you ran a PromQL query, it generates the results and sends you the data, and you shove that into Grafana or whatever. What's kind of poor about Prometheus is there's no way to tell how much resources are going to be used to service a PromQL request. So you could ask for a small amount of data, you could ask for a large amount of data, or a complicated mathematical pres uh, operations, and there's there's no real gating factor to to keep you safe from executing a query that just brings machine to its knees. And I haven't seen any of the, the smart query proxies and stuff for Prometheus yet. I'm sure that people they are do working exist. on them. Sure. They do exist. But I haven't seen one in action is what I'm saying. I, uh, I haven't actually seen one like operationally that's configurable and flexible enough to handle kind of an arbitrary customer's use. I've seen smart query proxies and stuff for other services in the past, which we'll get to in a little bit. But they're generally very tailored towards... I have a, a specific problem I'm solving, and I'm going to keep the queries within the rails for that problem. There's a proxy called Trickster, uh, which usually would sit in between Prometheus and Grafana. And basically what it does is it intercepts queries from Grafana, breaks those queries apart into smaller time ranges, and builds deterministic uh, time boxes for each of those queries. So suddenly those queries become repeatable and deterministic. It can cache the results of a lot of that data except for the very last three or four minutes uh, to, to fill in the very edge of the graph. And I've seen some good results with Trickster, but I haven't actually used it myself yet. So so the third example to look at is Elk. And I'm going to talk about it because I, I use it at work a lot, and I can kind of speak to the, the ins and the outs of it and how it scales. And it has a very different scaling model than either web servers or Prometheus do. So application state. Elk sure stores a whole lot of state. It has cluster state, it has cluster metadata, it has node state, it has all the data you've actually fed it, you have all the shards and the indexes and, and whatnot on disk. All of those are replicatable between machines. They have a, a very well-tested set of operations to handle the database transactions, the flushes, the syncs between the different nodes, consistency checks, 
Um, how do you recover from failures of individual shards? How do you recover from failures of individual of whole nodes? How do you recover from all these kinds of things? So they they check the box in terms of being able to persist and repl replicate application state and user data across a large number of machines without a whole lot of problem. What consistency algorithms does it use? This is where I am somewhat frustrated that they had written a an algorithm called Zen years ago, instead of using something like Raft or Paxos. And they decided it wasn't up to their standards, and so they've rewritten it, and they've, re they've re released a new version of Zen. And How's Zen of them? Yes. I, I do wish they had used one of the industry standard states. Um, their developers have talked a little bit about the reasons why they made the decisions they've made, and I can understand them, but I still don't really enjoy knowing that I'm running a cluster that a bunch of smart people have said, we're smart enough, we'll write our own. It, it, that's almost never a good, it, that does not give me a good feeling. It's written in Java and runs on the JVM. The bounding, the bounding factor for Elasticsearch is memory. And don't let anybody tell you anything differently. Uh, people argue about RAM and, or about network and about CPU, but really the gating factor for Elasticsearch is how much RAM do you have and how much heap do you, or how much heap do you have and how much RAM do you have left over for, for, for your file system caches? Because that is everything to Elasticsearch. That is what it needs. And that's what we scale on. That's what everybody scales on at this point. That when you get to about 30 gigs of heap, you need another node. And that's where that's where the devil lies in this one. Because um, as you scale up, you now increase network load between nodes. You increase the overhead of cluster state. The cluster state gets larger because it has more nodes in it and more indexes and more shards and more documents. So that part of it starts to hurt a little bit. However, for input, it has a REST API. They have imp implemented 420, 429 back pressure stuff very well. So they will signal to incoming data that, hey, we're overloaded, we're too busy, you, you need to slow your roll. If you keep on coming, they will start sending errors back and say, hey, we couldn't process that whole batch. You need to resend either these portions of that batch or the whole batch. They do a really good job of handling the data safety there, letting people know when you're sending them data, if they got it, how they got it, if anything else happened, um, it can take data in any order. It can take data to any node. You can connect to a master node if you really wanted to and send it um, bulk updates and the master will take it and handle it and pass it off to the clients in the cluster. You should not do this. But it, it's very flexible and very elastic in that sense. So you can bring in data extraordinarily easily and it'll tell you if you're going too fast or if you're not doing something quite correct. The output side of Elasticsearch is also a REST API, much like Prometheus. And unlike Prometheus, the Elasticsearch developers have done an extraordinary amount of work building circuit breakers and test harnesses to understand kind of how bad queries are. And if you started an Elasticsearch in the 1.x days or the 2.x days, cluster ooms were very frequent where a query would come in and the nodes would panic and run out of memory before the cluster was able to circuit break and deny the query. And so it was frequent recovery. There was a lot of issues there. Five got a lot better. Six has been amazing, and seven is, looks very promising, where the process intimately knows how much memory is available on the node, roughly how much memory the query that has just come in is going to take, how much how the caches are going to play into this, all of the other all of the other pieces that make this work. And so they can intelligently say, yeah, no, that's that's not going to happen, and not blow up the cluster. Sometimes you'll get a query that that wants to go run for five or six minutes. And that's kind of a user disaster in terms of experience. But the cluster doesn't fall over. And often when you do that, the second time you run it, now it's cached. And so it comes back very quickly. So that has been getting a lot better. The smart proxies I've seen for Elasticsearch have always been very focused on, 
I'm running an e-commerce platform or I'm running a data analytics pipeline or I'm running a thing. And it's like, but I, I don't want to do that. I, w- I need a more general purpose. And I never found one that was good enough until Elasticsearch itself got really good at handling this. But onto the other scaling piece, the way that Elastic gets around, okay, so 50 nodes is a big cluster. 80 nodes is a lot of nodes. Every time you add another node, it adds more network connections. It adds more process to it. So how do you how do you keep growing? And the solution that Elastic came up with is all of this is a REST API call away. So we'll let you query clusters from other clusters, pass the REST calls around, and pass the REST responses back around. So for a very modest latency hit, you can have one cluster query five others. And so that's kind of the way we've been moving on the scale problem of as we get more data in, we spin up another cluster, we add it to the cross cluster search, and now we can fan out queries across all of our data. And it works extraordinarily well. So if we if we were told there's a 10x, a 10x increase in traffic coming, okay, well, open the checkbook, we're going to send it more instances, and you'll have it. And we know it's going to work. I've been really impressed lately with the scalability of the Elk platform and what you can do with it with, with competent folks behind it, pushing it, and maintaining it. Uh, so that's, that's really stood out to me recently as with the right people, the software stack there is, is well-designed is well designed for internet scale. It, it's a little bit of a resource hog, but once you start scaling it, it scales pretty linearly. You add nodes, and now you have more heap, and you have more capacity, and you can keep on growing. And it just keeps on growing. We've we've done things to it that my friends who are Elastic developers say you really shouldn't. Like, no, you sh- you shouldn't do that. You That's shouldn't not... do that to our stuff. But they're like, I'm I'm glad it's working for you. I'm I'm really happy that that is that is a functional piece of the system. Um, of course. We're, we move about 100 terabytes a day right now, and that's a volume that nobody can run a test harness around. It's, just, it's too much data. I mean, sorry, Google might be able to, or one of the other really big players might be able to do that kind of thing, but for a relatively small company like Elastic or um, the folks who do Prometheus or the, a lot of the other metricing and logging platforms, there's, sorry, there's a siren outside. It's headed to your Elk cluster. <laughs> but companies can't run test harnesses the size of our production data set. It's just, it's too much data to cost effectively do for regression analysis and, and bug tracking and, and those kinds of things. So when I give them feedback and I say, hey, we, we've, we've hit these levels, they're always very happy to hear that we've hit those levels. They're not terribly surprised, but then I tell them how we get there and they kind of look at me and they go, don't, don't, <laughs> don't, don't turn that knob, but it works. So I've been working a lot with scaling up Prometheus of late. And what makes me really appreciate some of the work that you've done with Elk, Brendan, is that some of these problems with Prometheus just aren't well handled. And the fact that we can't replicate data, the fact that we have small no- many small nodes that easily pop at a moment's notice from a bad query, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of small moving parts to piping a large amount of data through Prometheus and on the order of millions of samples per second kind of data. It's doable. Thanos has, has been really helpful in being able to smartly distribute queries and sort of detach running of the, the math in the query from, from loading the raw data into memory, which definitely helps with query performance and not being able to, to pop nodes very quickly. But yeah, but I've been jealous. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us.
Additionally, we welcome feedback about the shows you've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 76th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night. Web scale. MongoDB.